Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Support for the Bowery Boys is also provided by Momix, appearing at the Joyce Theater in New York City from July 24th through August 12th. Seamlessly blending illusion, physicality, magic, and whimsy, Momix is pure fun. The company's return to the Joyce Theater is by now an annual frolic. This season, Momix 38th overall, the company of dance illusionists will be performing their most iconic and beloved choreography. Don't miss the company that the Wall Street Journal raves is full of, quote, beguiling, eye-filling, and often impressive visual and movement theatrics. Get your tickets at Joyce.org or by calling 212-242-0800 or visit the Joyce Theater box office at 175 8th Avenue at 19th Street. The Bowery Boys episode 266, Under Siege, New York City during the American Revolution. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And today, we're going to visit one of our all-time favorite subjects on this show, and that is New York City during the Revolutionary War. And we'll be revisiting a couple of our favorite shows from our back catalog. The subject of today's show is New York City from the years 1776 to 1783. During the late summer of 1776, British forces moved in on the fledgling army of George Washington, attacking the army in Long Island, nearly finishing them off near the town of Brooklyn, and eventually running them out of the city of New York entirely. So as war raged on in the colonies, with the fate of American independence in the balance, New York became the base of operations for the British military, under martial law, a city of chaos, a city in ruin. So that's the subject, but this is also a flashback show. So Tom and I started the Barry Boys podcast in June of 2007. In February of 2008, so well over a decade ago, we recorded two shows called The British Invasion and Life in British New York. Those are episodes 35 and 36, respectively. What you're about to hear are those episodes recut, re-edited, and combined into one show. Our shows were like 20 minutes back then, and they're much longer today, so you have to combine them to give you something comparable. So you'll be hearing this breathtaking history as we told it back then. Listen for some mild, dated cultural references to the Iraq War, Jennifer Garner TV shows, and even a reference to a particular presidential candidate. And stay tuned until the end, for there will be a newly recorded segment on a couple of key aspects of New York during the Revolutionary War that we failed to include during that original recording. So don your tricorn hat, arm your musket, and prepare to visit the years 1776 and 2008 in this tale of New York under British occupation. So, 
the world that we're about to visit is a New York that is completely different than the one we have now. Tom, why don't you take us back to 1763, where Shall we're going to begin our journey. Right. Well, you know, you say it's completely different. I will argue that in 1763, New York was actually already cosmopolitan. Okay. And though small, it sort of felt like a metropolis because you had a very diverse mix of people. The population was made up of all manner of religions, uh, Protestants, Anglicans, Dutch Reformed, Lutherans, Quakers. There weren't very many Jews and Catholics because they had lost certain rights, so many of them had left. But still, you can imagine the different languages being spoken. And all of this in a town that had a population of just over about 20,000 in 1763. 20,000 people. It doesn't seem like much, but that's a urban center for the, that period of time. And and small geographically too. Of course, New York was centered on the the southern tip of Manhattan, going up only till what would be about City Hall Park today would be the northern mm-hmm. limit of the city. City Hall, of course, was down on Wall Street. Oh, that's right, right. City, right. city Hall was an area called the Commons. It was just sort of a grassy Today's land. City Hall yeah, was today's the City Hall, yes. And the City Hall at the time was down on Wall Street. Right. And the government was actually sort of a hybrid. It was There was a royally appointed uh, leader, governor, and mayor type. There was a democracy. They elected minor officials. So it was a sort of mix. There was a state assembly that was elected by voters. And society was, you know, based on, well, the, the, there were upper classes who were landowners and merchants and lawyers and then a middle class. And then there was a very large lower class as well who did a lot you- of the work. But it was... A functional small town, small-ish sure. town with with good industry based on shipping, so, you know, small stores and small factories. But it would, it would have been a very interesting place to be. And the British had been in charge basically for 100 years by this particular time, almost exactly 100 right. years at this, by this time. So in 1763, 1764, the English were actually under a huge amount of debt. They had just battled the French and the Indians in the French and Indian War over here in North America. And so they had a debt of almost 150 million pounds. And they they needed some ways to make money. So they sort of looked at the colonists and they said – you know what? You're benefiting primarily from all this defense that we're doing. So we're going to start charging you for it. You know, they passed all these different laws and these different acts throughout the colonies that basically taxed them. And of course, the colonists weren't taking the sitting down. No. And so what happened is the Stamp Act came along. That was in 1765. Basically, that meant that all public documents like wills and marriage certificates, playing cards even, needed this kind of stamp on playing them. Playing cards. Playing cards had to have the stamp, official, play, uh, official playing cards of the British Empire. The colonists had no voice in British government. And so the fact that they had to sort of pay money for these for things to be official, you know, that they consider this to be a, a form of taxation. The colonists believed that they should have the same rights as Englishmen, New Yorkers led the protests. As a matter of fact, the first Stamp Act Congress, which actually collected the reps of uh, nine different colonies, met in in a building where Federal Hall is today, actually. This was to express their outrage and to pull basically pull the colonists together into like one one mindset. Meanwhile, outside in the streets, there was all this violence against those who were enforcing the Stamp Act. There were mobs that took to the streets. They were burning the homes of English office holders. The stamps themselves, which were kind of were sitting out in the harbor, were you know were just effectively destroyed, were burned because the stamps had come over in giant vessels and were just stuck out at sea in the harbor, stuck on the ships. Yes. Because nobody dared to bring them on. Well, of, well, of course not. It was right. it was too in, too much too incensed. So even when this act was later appealed, it didn't matter. The, the spark of independence had already been lit. You know, there was a huge boycott of British goods in New York. There was an organiz- an underground organization. One could say a terrorist organization, if you're uh-huh. looking at it from one way, uh, called the Sons of Liberty. They also linked to groups in Boston and to other major cities. They often used violence in g- getting their point across, basically. When the act was repealed, the Sons of Liberty hoisted up what they call a liberty pole up in the common grounds area. It was basically just a way to like send messages to others in their organization, and it was rather rebellious. So naturally, the British kept ripping it down, and they kept putting it back up again, and they kept being ripped down again. <laughs> Over the course of like 10 years, 
this unrest even spawned what is kind of almost considered one of the first battles of American independence uh, in 1770, and it's a battle called the Battle of Golden Hill, which was sounds like it's in the, some exotic place. It's literally on where John and William Street is today in downtown Financial District. Wow. It was a violent protest between British soldiers who were handing out these pro-British handbills. And so there was just fisticuffs happened and some, there was some bloodshed. And this was in 1770. So this was one of the first... So this is still six years before the revolution and tempers are boiling. Right. But here we... I'm going to gloss over this really quickly because a lot of this happened outside of New York. Uh, Right. History buffs pour another drink. (laughs) The colonists unite, you know, first under the Articles of Association in 1774, New York being one of the colonists. Right. Of course. Of course. You know, by this time, the British troops were amassing and have already been fighting the Brownlee newly formed Continental Army, which is being led by young George Washington. The Battle of Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, and of course, the Battle of Bunker Hill, this year-long siege, which basically forced the British out of Boston. So the British fled to Halifax. Washington knew, though, that they were that the next target would be the next biggest port. That would be New York. So Washington and his Continental Army already started to amass themselves in New York on April 13th of 1776 and getting recruits from all over the place, having all of these soldiers from every little colony, lots of poor men, boys who are coming to the town, a lot of them getting sick because it's the summertime and a lot of them away from their families for the first time. So New York's a little bit chaotic at this point. Then, finally, Mm -hmm. we get to July the 4th, 1776. And the Declaration of Independence is, of course, penned in Philadelphia. Washington, a few days later, Washington triumphantly reads the Declaration of Independence to these newly grouped soldiers and to all these crowds who are just, you know, hankering for some action, I guess. In New York. In New York. He he reads it at the Commons, the same area where the Liberty Pole had been. So the crowds get so enraged that they rush downtown to Bowling Green. And down there was a statue of King George on his horse. They get so enraged that they pull the statue down and they behead him. Him, oh. And then they turned some of the, some of the statue into bullets to be used in the war, or well, that's so what they plan to do. So, so they they threatened to melt down the king for bullets to fight the king. July of seventy six. This is July of seventeen seventy six, in the heart of Independence time, but it's not quite so rosy because here come the British. Washington was right. Just a few days later, the British do enter New York Harbor. They they encamp on Tory-friendly, loyalist Staten Island, um, with Newdorp being there when they camp at first. Now, when you say, I'm sorry, loyalist-friendly Tory oh, the lo- territory, well, so the Tories were friendly to the crown. Correct. The friendly to the crown. And then who the, we will also be calling the loyalists. Or, and then on the other side, we have the patriots or the rebels, depending right. on how you want to we'll look at. We'll and and their political party was the Whigs. So the ships come into New York Harbor. People are sitting on their roofs and they're just looking at gasp and terror at these approaching ships. There were only about at this time what thirty thousand New Yorkers now in, in 1776. Right. There were you know double that amount of British troops and Hessians. These uh the the, the, the hired G- German soldiers, German mercenaries, right? And just to sort of like tease and frighten the New Yorkers even more. And this is a little bit of foreshadowing. Two ships would sell up the Hudson on the Hudson side, not the East River side. And they would exchange fire with a a couple forts, including Fort George, which would have a young 19-year-old King's College student by the name of Alexander Hamilton there Mm -hmm. lighting some of the cannon fires. The British would easily go up the Hudson and back. And so this is a little bit of foreshadowing. and, And Washington has this in mind for later because they could be basically bottled in to Manhattan if they were to get to the top of the island and cut them off. And they'd be stuck. Yes. So on July 13th, uh, the Admiral Lord Howe, the leader of the British Army, sends a message to, quote, Mr. Washington. Mm-hmm. and Stripping you know, him of his title. Asking him for a meeting. The note is rejected. Since as July fourth, he is now General Washington. This rings a bell. I've heard this. Some this was also perhaps Mr. Stuyvesant. Peter, Peter Stuyvesant did the very same thing to the British. Actually, I don't know whether he got this idea from them, but I I do find that an interesting. Maybe parallel. he heard our podcast. <laughs> So, but this happens two or three times, but they do finally, they do finally meet, he, or he meets one of Howe's emissaries. 
but Washington casts such a domineering theatrical presence. Like he becomes a leader of the newfound nation that the, that the, that the British, you know, are trying to squash. And here's like a, a man that's going to be very hard to beat. Right. He's talking about change. He, he's changed. So, so he will not, he will not back down. So that falls through the British attack. Now Washington ha- splits his army. Half of them go over to the Brooklyn side and half of them stay in New York. The British land in, on Graveson Bay in, in Brooklyn. Brooklyn was b- basically chosen to be attacked first because it was very sparsely populated and a lot of loyalist sympathizers were over there. Washington sent the, the, the troops that he sent to Brooklyn. They manned various forts throughout Brooklyn that they ex- expect to come into contact with the British as Fort Box and this Fort Green, this Fort Putnam. Unfortunately, there's one area that they just didn't guard very well. He sent five soldiers to sort of watch over and guard what was called the Jamaica Pass. Now, unfortunately, this is what the British choose to make their entry into Brooklyn towards so, br- towards Brooklyn Heights, where a lot of his men are stationed at. So, so the American army had five soldiers. Five soldiers at Jamaica Pass, correct. And they were, of course, like immediately captured. They had no problem driving the Continental Army back, and uh, they suffered really huge losses. They were forced to cross Gowanus Creek, which back then was actually a nice creek and not a polluted, disgusting creek as it is today. On August 27th, the British took up a strategic military position in this place called the Vecht Farmhouse, where 2,000 of their soldiers blocked the the rebels retreat. Now I'm mentioning this because it's now referred to as the old stone house and you can, it's a place that you can visit in Brooklyn. It's still, it's still standing. A brave number of, of rebel soldiers led by William Alexander actually took this house from the British twice in one day before eventually being taken prisoner. But because of this, Washington's army was able to cross Gowanus Creek in time. So Washington's army is getting pushed back through Brooklyn by the British force. Yes, and essentially. Th- and they're getting pushed back up to what? Uh, Brooklyn Heights? They're, they're, in, they're in Brooklyn Heights, as a matter of fact. They're back and, up against the wall. Well, so Washington decides that they all need to retreat to Manhattan. So on the night of August 29th, he evacuates all 9,000 soldiers that he has left back to Manhattan. And at night, using literally every conceivable floating device that they could possibly find, just shipping all these soldiers back and forth. That's really hard to do on the East River at With night. With 9,000 men. Quietly. Exactly. By, suns- by sunrise, they still didn't have everyone across. If they had been caught retreating, I mean, this would have been totally easy pickings for the British. Luckily, a thick fog had crawled in at that particular moment and basically covered the Americans, the rebels, if you will, until they were all safely back to Manhattan. Wow, fortuitous. But now here they are all in Manhattan. You have like hundreds of, of injured soldiers. The morale is really down because they've just retreated. Well, they've been pushed back, yeah. And so <laughs> I'm like a child. And then? Well, and then the Americans, rebel delegation, makes another attempt, um, a sort of a peace treaty. Uh, John Adams, Ben Franklin, Ed- Edward Rutledge met General Howe in Staten Island to see if they could work something out. Oh, the Americans right, yeah. still refused to capitulate on the on the declaration. Howe refused to back down, so that didn't work. So the British were basically ready to like attack Manhattan. Washington, though, and something that may look like a little cowardice now, but he had to think about this army was the only thing standing between the British, and the making of a new America. He had to really preserve the army, even if he made some decisions that seemed, at the time, a little cowardly. So basically what he decided, he didn't want to be bottled in. He decides to completely abandon New York. Which would also be a choice to abandon the New Yorkers, because there were Americans who were living, you know, there were 30,000 people living in the city, and he was just basically throwing the city up into the air and saying, he wasn't, well, yeah. let's hope it lands on its feet. Well, I'm sure that they weren't happy with, with the. Well, you know, I'm not sure if they were happy with leaving or maybe they were. Maybe it was like, well, if you, if you leave and they're not going to, you know, they won't bomb us. So on September 15th, the British do finally land in Manhattan. And where do they land? They land on Kipps Bay, uh-huh. which is um, on basically on 34th Street on the East River. What's where the heliport is now, if you know where all the helicopters land in Manhattan. The 34th and the East River? Yes. Kind of behind Bellevue Hospital? That's where they, yes, that's where they landed. They caught the back flank of Washington's evacuating army. They didn't catch the whole thing on, on its way out. They only caught the back. 320 of them were captured as prisoners. But here's the thing, is that the British would have captured many more men, would have actually probably 
killed or captured at least half of his army if it wasn't for a charming middle-aged lady by the name of Mrs. Robert Murray. Now, you might be like, why is a, is a woman in the story of all these men fighting on battlefields? And, and who is this Mrs. Murray? She was the wife of an officer, a mother, and a Quaker. She, her home, which was in today's Murray Hill, her last name's Murray, uh-huh. you might see a connection there. She delayed William Howe and his colonels by inviting them up for tea and wine. So, because, you know, they were really exhausted, and here's a, here's a, a kindly lady offering them, you know, tea and some rest for the colonels, for the men, you know, making the decisions. You know, the British, they cannot turn down a good cup of tea. Then they can't. So this social tactic, they they say, I like to believe this, even though I think it's a little bit urban legend. Uh, this social tactic may have delayed the British enough so that a bulk of the Continental Army could actually escape. So wait, how did she get their attention? She just like stuck her head out the window and said, "Boys, come up for tea." Well, she was a you know she was a, a, a woman of high class, and you know, she she had her methods. So Washington and the Continental Army go up to northern Manhattan to an area called Harlem Heights. This is the area that's sort of modern West Harlem and Columbia University, you know, Morningside Heights area. Sure. On September 16th, the fighting commenced up there in Harlem Heights with another 2,000 American soldiers against 5,000 British soldiers at this particular time. Still outnumbered, the Continental Army were retreating slightly. Then the British make this, what I would say, almost hilarious strategic error. They oh. start uh, blowing these foxhound horns. You know, like the, the, when the British foxhound hunts, they blow these horns. But they had just brought them over? Well, they have them on their – as part of the regalia, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't you have- Are we getting an email about this? Yes? So anyway, they take off their fox so, horns. Well, some of them have fox horns anyway, and so they start blowing them. The, the Continental Army hears them, and it's almost an insult, like, oh, you think you're just going to like chase us down like foxes now? You think this is going to be the end? So they almost wow. like regain their spirit and regain their confidence. And they, it, the Harlem Heights battle ends up almost being a draw with more British losses than losses on the rebel side. Because the Continental Army was offended by a sort of unintentional metaphor? Well, it was, it was a mixture of actually having— I mean, having these a- soldiers were deep— <laughs> It was a mixture of uh, uh, metaphors and then, you know, actually having like a good place to battle from. And, you know, maybe they might have even had some food in them. I don't know at this time. Unfortunately, the the Connell Army does have to give up Manhattan Island. Just strategically, it makes sense. They head on into New Jersey and they have many more adventures, which we won't be talking about anymore since we're just sticking here in right. Manhattan. The, the Jersey Boys can actually tell that <laughs> yes, the in Jersey their story, right, in their podcast. But, so we've got the British basically taking over New York City yeah, in but, one fell swoop. Yeah, but they got some stuff that they've got to deal with down in New York while that's been going on. So then on September 21st, the Great Fire of 1776. That's right. A huge fire sweeps through New York. It was. It started at the Fighting Cox Tavern. There were no alarms, curiously, because most of them had been melted down for ammunitions. So uh. the fire spread very, very quickly. It eventually took almost four hundred. Almost took four hundred to five hundred buildings. A quarter, well, it took a quarter of the town, right? Yeah. A quarter of the ho- the homes too. A qu- so many. Bill, I mean, that must have looked so frightening, just on top of this battle already happening. Obviously, because the city was so compact and, and pushed down in the southern tip of Manhattan, and it just took out a whole dense quarter mm-hmm. and left so many people homeless at a time when they were already stressed because there were so many people in need of housing. This was a bad time. And, of course, there were all kinds of conspiracy theories about who was responsible for this. Well, yes, they, they thought that the it was a rebel plan, but a later Washington claims that it was not. In fact, Washington, according to the accounts I read, was telling his soldiers not to touch or harm any building on the way out. They didn't want this to be a sort of like, you know, raise it to the ground on the way out of town ordeal because they were going to be hopefully coming back soon to New York, which was their pride. But they did. The British did interrogate almost 200 people. They shot a lot of people just on suspicion. Then while this was going on, they ended up capturing a young spy by the name of, and this one will tickle your ears if you're a Uh history buff, Nathan Hale. He was apprehended in Flushing Bay, Queens, actually, at a tavern, and he was brought back. He was accused of being a spy, and he was hung on September 22nd. 
Not before, of course, he gave his famous line that all of history now records. I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. So New York then became the British military operation base. And for, I guess, the next several years, it's the center of loyalist British life. Okay, Greg, I think I've been following the whole story correctly. Washington's army has been pushed out of town. The British are here. They've taken over New York City. And basically, we have a chaotic situation now in which New Yorkers have to make a choice whether to stay or to go. If they stay, they have to pledge allegiance to the king. If they go, well, where do they go? And, you know, the general mood is, well, Washington kind of just got his butt kicked. The army is a weak, frail army. They're about to see some real hard times in New Jersey. It's 1776, and a war that would go on for another seven years has really just begun. You know, American independence is on the edge of a knife, as they say, and the British have really shown their dominance here, and they sit here in New York, and they, they, it's now theirs. In fact, right, New York would function then for the next seven years throughout the course of the Revolutionary War really as the central point of command for the British. So, I mean, what would life be like then for the next six or seven years? What would, I mean, how would it be to be a citizen of New York City? What would you have to be going through? What would you have to put up with? Well, I'm glad you asked. Next, we will be talking about what it was like to live as a New Yorker inside, basically, the fortress, the British fortress that was New York for seven years. It was a rough city, and there were rough times. There was cold, there was famine, and there were also a lot of soldiers and a lot of empty and burned houses. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. As of September of 76, the city of New York was in British hands. And tied into this, of course, concurrently in 76 is the Great Fire that wiped out a quarter of the city of New York, a quarter of the housing, and caused great devastation on the city because it took out so many of the, the homes and the livelihoods. So you have that horrible incident happening at the same time that the city's management and ownership is kind of in flux 
and a huge population shift. And this is what I find so interesting, and I hadn't really thought about this before mm-hmm. we started studying this, was that you had these different populations in flux, really. Because if you were an American and patriotic, you had to get out of New York before it fell to British yes. authorities. And if you were from the outside, uh, let's say a British loyalist, and all around you, the American army is taking over these lands, you had to get into someplace safe as well. So New York became a safe haven for British loyalists. It's people going in and out of the city in, in just rapid pace. Right. And think of just from a property standpoint, if you own a house and the city falls and you take off, well, there's a house. And given that there was a a fire and a housing shortage, it's no big surprise then that people were occupying each other's properties. It's not like you can just lock up the door and your possessions and your property is going to be safe. As you said in 78, with the influx of new soldiers coming into town, they needed to live someplace. All of the officers needed to live someplace. And all of the newly arriving loyalists needed to live someplace, too. So they were just taking over these properties left and right. That is just a snapshot of what it looked like on the streets of New York with people abandoning their properties and assuming other people's properties. Do you know how many residents lived in New York at this time during the war? Did they have like any like firm numbers? Well, it's really hard to say because... I mean, we know, as we said last week, in 1763, so if we rewind a bit, there were about Mm -hmm. 20,000. A little difficult to count, probably. Well, they do know, or they estimate that in 1781, there were about Mm 25,000, if that gives you an idea. About 33,000 by 1783, uh, when other British outposts had fallen and people were coming into the city. So it was somewhere around like the 25 to 35,000 population mark, but it would it would also fluctuate with incoming soldiers and outgoing. I mean, they were importing and exporting people as well into New York. Right. And we're and just to keep in mind, we're only talking about New York at this time, which was just essentially the financial district, the downtown Manhattan right. area. So the that, city went up to what? About where City Hall is? Yeah. Today? So, I mean, that's not, you know, that d- may not sound like a big number until you realize that, that they're all squished down into that area and they didn't have gigantic high rises. You know, they didn't have, so. <laughs> <laughs> there were even farms. So there's just a ton of people crammed in this little area. Now, of course, with the British taking over control, that meant that there was a new government at City Hall. Mm-hmm. And before the war, the city of New York had a kind of hybrid government, you know, as part appointee uh, from the, the crown and part elected officials. And they kind of worked together more or less harmoniously. Part of, but, part of a colony. Sure. That makes right. sense. After the war was declared, it really was military rule out with democracy of any real sort. And trial by jury went out the window. Right. They just didn't have time for that sort of thing. And, you know, the streets really weren't that safe because there weren't that many police officers. And the police weren't really that focused on civil matters. You know, they had their hands full. If you can imagine all the things, I think it's pretty easy for us to imagine today, an (laughs) occupying force in a city um, (laughs) and sort of chaotic state. I think so. Where minor theft... You know, and, you know, jaywalking may not be on top of the list of things that they're concerned with. But and on top of this, you can just imagine all the soldiers coming in and out on ships. And where in the world were they living? But they were camped out everywhere, right? I yeah, mean, they, they built huts. Every little place that they could, right? Huts up in fields, of course, as you ventured up Bowery and past what is today's City Hall and mm-hmm. went further out into the farmlands, like up near Stuyvesant's farm. Oh, of course. All the way up in the East Village today. Yeah, yeah all the way up there. You can imagine fields of soldiers' huts. Now, I, I want to clarify something because, I mean, I made it sound, being melodramatic, that Washington has completely abandoned New York at this time. But this is where, like, cue the espionage music. In fact, there are some members of Washington's army here, but they're as spies, basically. In 1778, Washington assigns his chief intelligence officer, Benjamin Talmadge, 24 years old, to create a group of spies – Benjamin, by the way, was a former classmate of Nathan Hale, uh-huh. who we mentioned last podcast was hanged for being a spy in the early part of the Revolutionary War. Talmadge huh. created what is called the Culper Ring, and it worked in clandestinely in New York City from 1778 to 1781. 
they would basically steal information. They would become part of New York society. They would uncover information, then report it back via letters and invisible ink. So they'd completely infiltrate it. Uh, yes. Did you say invisible ink? Oh, yes. Invisible ink. It's called, they actually called it the sympathetic stain. And it was a white ink that they would use to write letters. And George Washington had on his end the could apparatus. The apparatus. A huge network of operatives. One of them was named Abraham Woodhall. Um, he was a 27 year old who could communicate in code. I'm going to show you something here, Tom, oh. that um, I'll show, put on the blog. This is not prepared. This is a list of how they would – encoding, basically. Certain words would be a series of numbers and letters. So they would do these – they would make these letters that would be complete wow. gobbledygook. Um, so if they fell into the wrong hands, no one could really understand what they meant. So if you used 7-Eleven – we, you were not talking about a convenience store. No, you were back, talking back about General Washington. Yes, yes, he was Seven Eleven. There was a there was another man by the name of Robert Townsend. His code name was Culper Junior. He was a store owner and a journalist for a loyalist newspaper. He was so undercover that they only uncovered his identity in 1939 from handwriting samples. And was the handwriting in special ink? I believe it was a normal ink, oh. <laughs> but you just couldn't read it. So this is what's going on underneath the fabric of British New York at this time. Right. So the normal in, life. Just well, yeah, it sounds – you've made it sound very romantic and yes. really kind of intriguing. Yeah, I mean like it's a, it's a TV – like the TV show Alias. But in fact, for the normal person, right, it was Most people so were fun. not spies. No. I would say these were difficult times for the majority of the population because people were hungry. They were thirsty. They were cold, and many people were poor, and they were looking for places to live. Can you imagine? I mean, New York was isolated from the other colonies, and there were, there were laws on the books to prevent them, of course, from trading with the mm -hmm. other colonies. Can you imagine today if New York wasn't allowed to trade with the <laughs> other colonies? <laughs> what the I mean, other colonies? The, <laughs> the other else, colonies. What, where would we get our food? There was a major food shortage because New York wasn't growing that much. You know, There, there were farms, but there were not farms, for this of of people. Right. There were just too many people here, and there were more people coming in all the time. So they were, they were getting a lot of their food from the motherland, who was shipping over right. great ships full of food, which of course— But even that was dangerous, having gigantic you know, ships during wartime. Right. You know. That was dangerous. Things would happen to the ships, and food would, of course, spoil on the way, yeah. on the way over. You had soldiers to feed first. I mean, wasn't that their first priority? Right. Almost? Well, I the mean... soldiers and the officers. And then the other people in town really had to kind of fight for themselves. Of course, people with money could get what they needed. But by the end of the war, the cost of meat and flour had shot up so high— I mean, there was a complete imbalance of prices between what people inside New York were paying and what people in the rest of the country were paying, which sounds now like today. <laughs> sounds kind of <laughs> like shopping at Gristidi's. Are we talking about? Yeah, are we talking about Whole Foods down the block? Um, Don't knock it. It sounds like people have it really bad, but Tom, there are people in Manhattan who have it worse than described. Those people. But wait, it only gets better. <laughs> yeah, it's getting more grim as we continue here. Keep in mind this being the military base of New York, this is also where the prisoners come, the captured Am Americans. This is – they're coming here. So immediately – Oh, the, and there's plenty of place to put them. Of course. Well, all the prisons immediately fill up. So then they decide, well, OK, the prisons are filled up. Let's turn our sugar houses into prisons where they, you know, where they store – storage places, storage facilities for sugar and such. They turn those into prisons. Then those filled up. So then they had hospital boats and other kind of non-war vessels come in, and they had them as prison ships. And so these ships were basically – there was, a, there was a, eventually a total of 16 of them, and they were right off Wallabout Bay. Do you know what Wallabout Bay yeah, is? where is that? That's actually the area between the Williamsburg and the Manhattan Bridges on the Brooklyn side. It's ah, where the – Like the, the Navy The yard? Brooklyn Navy Yard okay. is essentially where Wallabout Bay is. And so these boats were basically docked about 100 yards off into the water. Tom, this is like – I don't know. It gives me like a sick feeling to think that like – there in the, our beautiful New York Harbor, you basically had American prisoners, thousands kept in absolutely horrible conditions on board these ships. More prisoners died in New York Harbor than total Continental Army soldiers in the entire Revolutionary War. Wow. In fact, some accounts say it says twice as many deaths, an estimate of up to 8,000 to one of the more popular numbers 
rounded numbers was 11,500 men and women died on these prison ships. Women too? Yes. I mean, just well, anyone who was a, captured. A, anyone who was captured and who was an enemy to the crown. The most notorious of all these ships was called the HMS Jersey, which they also called, not surprisingly, the Hell. It was basically an, uh, an old warship that was stripped of its weaponry. Most soldiers went into these two dark closed compartments, almost 350 men per compartment. At one time, a thousand men in one of these holds. And believe it or not, there was one hold at the bottom that was even worse place, and it was reserved for the greater enemies, namely the French and Spanish soldiers who had been assisting the rebels. They put them in a special place because they hated them even worse. Wow. So the conditions were awful. Thousands of people kept blown deck without sunlight, food, water. Many of them were injured. Many of them were just young soldiers away from home, totally scared, shoved together for months, ravaged with diseases like smallpox. Just, it's so horrible. And then the deaths, they would have at least seven or eight deaths a day, and they would just take the bodies and they would just throw them overboard, or they would bury them in these really shallow graves right up on the shore. Okay, so we have painted a pretty dismal picture here and believe it or not this is something that you can kind of experience today i know that sounds hard you're like where can you do that in fort green in fort green park there is this monument called the prison ship martyrs monument it was a a version of of this monument had been there the current one was dedicated in 1908 and was designed by the chem mead and white Mm -hmm. so under this monument are the remains of over 11,000 soldiers wow. are here in, th- in this park. And now that you know this story and you walk by it, it's, you know, you see thousands of monuments in New York, whatever. You know, you, to know that story and to realize this, it's really powerful. I recently went there after I read all this story and it was really kind of haunting. Mm. So all this death and destruction is going on in the harbor and so- overlooking a city which is starving and freezing. And some of it is homeless, and it's cold. But, however, for some people... For the few lucky ones... Life was fabulous. There's some good times, yeah. Yeah, and in reading a couple accounts, several of these authors open chapters on occupied New York... Sort of with the same tableau. They say, imagine pulling in, right, your, your ship and you're walking up mm-hmm. through, through Manhattan and you see all of the fun and the gaiety and the parades <laughs> and the, the theater. There was still a sort of facade of a functional, well, it was a functional city, sure. but a facade of fun and society. British officers, you know, need to be entertained. They need to be dined, you know, and they have money. And other people were still making money because businesses were still functional and trade was still, you know, the sort of cornerstone of the industry mm-hmm. in New York during the time. So leisure activities flourished. There were all manner of societies and clubs and dances and concerts and things like that. So if you were in so-called society, you could go out every night of the week and distract yourself with something else and not really think too much about the war because battles weren't happening. I mean, yes, you had warships full of American prisoners, but you didn't have battles happening you know, not any, uh, no, not any longer in this area. No, it's true. So one of the things that actually came back to town was theater. And did you know, Greg? <laughs> it comes back to the theater. Comes back to the theater. Did you know that uh, before the war started, that the Americans had actually pulled the plug on theater because they had seen it as too excessive. We didn't need to be, you know, distracted with this sort of frivolity before a war. You know, let's get. Well, you know, they, I can understand of, that there were some tension. But in fact, the, the British brought it back and, in fact, opened up the stage, if you will, to the British officers. They put an ad in the papers saying, oh, nice. Yes, British officers or soldiers are needed for the first production to be staged in New York, mm-hmm. the production of Tom Thumb. Really? Yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't know that was a play. <laughs> Well, it wasn't just Tom Thumb. I mean, they also produced classics by Moliere and Shakespeare. And in fact, the John Street Theater, Mm -hmm. which had been boarded up and closed, was renamed the Theater Royale. (laughs) And it gave elaborate productions and was wildly popular. There were actually public concerts being given every week at uh, Roubaix's Tavern. 
Rubelais. Rubelais, advertised in the New York Mercury. Isaac Levy was a famous magician who was performing at Rubelais, and there were dances that were held at Rubelais every other week. A lot was going on at Rubelais. <laughs> Well, there was a lot of a lot of gaiety for certain folks in the city, right? But unfortunately, all good times must end. Because or fortunately, or fortunately, oh, I guess so. Um, Are you a loyalist, Craig? No, sorry. <laughs> oh yes, maybe, maybe. <laughs> By 1781, though, the war had really turned towards the Continental Army, and of course, with the help of their international allies, the French and the Dutch and the Spanish, a series of big American successes, basically whittled and weakened the British forces down so that eventually in October of 1781, the British surrendered to Washington and Yorktown. Curiously, Washington was on his way to recapture New York. They were on their way up Hmm. to come and take back New York because they had been emboldened and and they had uh, all these successes and the army was stronger. But they were going to go back and to recapture New York, but then were told of this opportunity that the, that they could capture the British decisively at Yorktown, and they ended up taking it, which was a good decision. That could have actually saved the city. Yes, it did. I mean, it, it could, things could have been, you know, a, a war in New York would have been a disaster. The war's effectively over, but you know, with some uh, some skirmishes all the way through 1783. The British, though, are kind of scampishly still staying here in New York. This is the last holdout. You know, even though they have no support overseas, in mid-August of 1783, they get word that they were they have to evacuate. Mm. But you know, it's going to take them a while. Because again, a large number of loyalist refugees, so it took them a while to organize and get people out. Of time, yeah, because once again, here we are at this big population shift. It's shifting again. I know, just the logistics of it, it are like enough. Headache, it's hard enough to move your apartment across town. Can you imagine an entire city changing hands <laughs> again? So, the, so the you know the Treaty of Paris in 1783 is the official end of the war, granting land rights between America and Britain, and recognizing the colonies as a new country. So the British stay on for two more months, and then finally in November November 25, 1783, they leave. So it's so evacuation, or that is evacuation day. A day in which people who had been living in other people's homes, if you were evacuating, mm-hmm. were expected to drop off the keys with the city vestry at the city hall. <laughs> and this, there was a sort of provisional government set up to help with the handover, make sure that it goes smoothly. But you can imagine people taking off from these homes, dropping off their keys. It's like a rental car. <laughs> like, <laughs> rental car to return. Go. Yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, yeah, like a rental car, the real owner's coming back and checking for damage. Because oh, sure, yes. You can imagine the, the anxious patriots coming back. <laughs> Renovations, you know, things stolen, you know. Yeah, exactly. But they were told, the British were told by their generals to not harm any of the property, mm-hmm. to treat it respectfully, and to make this transition as clean as possible. So incredibly, there was very little harm done to these occupied homes. That's nice. So we're talking about a lot of people, 29,000 people in 1783, 29,000 loyalists Mm -hmm. departed from New York. 29,000 people had to get out before the Patriots came back in. And that's basically the population of the city, virtually. Yes. Yes. Where did they go? And how did they get there? Well, the king actually granted many of them land up in Canada. Oh. And so many of them got on board ships. Well, like, I, like, I would even say most of them got on ships and went up to Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia, okay. Right. Were given land and also were compensated for their losses because, of course, many people did own property in New York and were well, you know, had, leaving they, that yeah. property they, as well. They, they had made new businesses, those, those few that did were able to. So as we had mentioned in a previous podcast, this evacuation day was a hugely pomp circumstance. You know, They were seen off on boats. There was the, the final shot of the war with right. some angered British soldier shooting – at the Americans who were just waving them off. And of course, how come we not mention the greased pole? How <laughs> they had put a Union Jack up on top of a flagpole and they had greased the pole so like you couldn't take the flag down. But of course. So there was they, a little tomfoolery and trickery going on. It sounds very the Americans fraternity. Are, yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> fraternity. But the Americans are too motivated. They, they pulled that thing down before they even left the harbor. So, so Washington's marching in on November 25th with his troops. 
reclaiming the city and all is well what's I mean, the aftermath well what it, happened well george washington officially resigns as the head of the continental army just a few days later on december 4th and you know where he does it does it at Francis Tavern, which ah, is on well, not 50, far. 54 Pearl Street, a place you can still go. They have a great museum, great food. There's a bar. You can you can go there today and emulate his famous words. You know, he as he lifted his glass of wine and said, with a heart full of love and gratitude, I now take leave of you. I most devoutly wish that your latter days may be as prosperous and happy as your former ones have been glorious and honorable. He was then, at that point, escorted to the wharf, and then he boarded a boat and went back home to Mount Vernon at that moment. But as we know, George Washington would be back. Oh, yes, he would. He'd be back and sworn in. As the first president of the United States. And where would he be sworn in? He would be sworn in downtown Manhattan, New York, being the first headquarters of the American government at Federal Hall on Wall Street. And as a footnote to this podcast, because obviously we could talk about this for a really long time, Suffice it to say, we didn't even talk about the newspapers at the time during Loyalist rule. We didn't talk about churches because in the build-up to the war, the Anglicans were in a bad spot. But during the occupied period, of course, the Anglicans had, under British rule, they were the sort of preferred religion. Mm -hmm. And many other churches were converted to hospitals and into some schools and boarding houses for, for soldiers. So all of that was happening at the same time. And also with the schools, King's College was its its main school behind Trinity Church was converted into a hospital, mm -hmm. like so many other things. So the students were basically kicked out, but many of them had run off anyway well, to many, join the war. Many of them, like Alexander Hamilton, were, right. were soldiers anyway. I would, or I would, generals or whatever. That depleted the student body, needless to say. And many of the instruments and uh, the supplies were actually dropped off at City Hall and the the school itself was converted. I think during the war, just like a handful of people actually graduated from from King's College. <laughs> so as a footnote, Greg, I just wanted mm -hmm. to add that in May, let's see, May 1st of 1784, King's College was officially reopened in its old spot, but by a passage of the New York legislature, was renamed... Columbia, Columbia, Col Columbia College. College. Oh, yes. sorry. Yes, Columbia College. And you know, from there on, you can go take an American history class to get the rest of the story <laughs> in terms of Amer New America. But in terms of New York history, well, you know where to come every week. So that was our original look at New York City during British occupation, but it's not the complete picture of how New York was during those years. Way back when we recorded these episodes, you know, they were 25 to 30 minutes in length. And naturally, with a subject that broad, we neglected a few details, a few minor ones, but a couple major ones too, including slavery. Now, perhaps back then we thought it was tangential to the rebellion underlying the American Revolution in that story, but in fact, that's not really true at all. During the Revolutionary War, those enslaved people who found themselves within British-occupied areas were considered free. Thus, many thousands naturally escaped to New York, especially after June of 1779, when the British issued a proclamation promising, quote, every Negro who shall desert the rebel standard, full security to follow within these lines any occupation which he shall think proper. New York City, which was a center of the slave trade during the colonial period, was for at least this one moment in time anyway, a bastion of freedom, if not necessarily for peace. Naturally, many former slaves then fought alongside British troops. To further contrast the rebels here, the leader of the Continental Army, George Washington, held hundreds of enslaved people back in his plantation home of Mount Vernon. There was no altruism on the part of the Redcoats here. Only slaves owned by the rebels, the enemy, were promised freedom. And near the end of the Revolutionary War, American slave owners were actually allowed to come to New York to recapture their former slaves. But even with the promise of freedom within the borders of New York City during this period, some African Americans chose to fight with Washington's army against the British forces. 
Many were captured and thrown in with the thousands contained in those wretched prison ships that we mentioned earlier, those that were stationed in Wallabout Bay. One notable figure who was thrown into these ships at that time was a 14-year-old black soldier from Philadelphia named James Fortin, who was captured in 1779 and thrown into the HMS Jersey, the absolute worst of the prison ships. Fortunately, he was released a few months later and walked from Brooklyn back to his home in Philadelphia, where he lived a full life as a prominent businessman and abolitionist. Most black New Yorkers of this period actually lived north of the city, past the commons, around the area of Collect Pond, that increasingly foul body of water at the area of today's Civic Center. And that's the second point that I want to clear up here. Most New Yorkers did live in the center of town, even though it was a partially burnt out husk, very overcrowded and filthy. It was better protected than those estates that were scattered throughout the rest of Manhattan Island. But there was one significant development just northeast of the city's concentration, a private property with its own grid plan of streets running true east to west. This was the private development of the Delancey family. The Delanceys were a rich and powerful clan of colonial New York, and by the 1770s, their property included several organized streets and even a fashionable square here. This is all in the area of today's Lower East Side and Chinatown. In fact, the street named for their family, Delancey Street, runs through this area. The Delanceys were just one of many wealthy families that had homes, mansions, estates stretched all over the Manhattan landscape. Many of these families had allegiances to George Washington and the rebel cause, and they fled New York in the days leading up to the war. But not so with the Delanceys, who were loyalists and faithful to the crown. Oliver and his brother James Delancey even led a squadron of 1,500 loyalist volunteers organized as the Delancey Brigade. The Delanceys eventually fled New York near the end of the conflict, but continued collecting rents from those who lived on their property. Oliver Delancey's home was even ransacked and burnt to the ground. Across the island, into Westchester County and beyond, other stately mansions suffered similar fates during the British occupation, including a manor just north of the Delanceys, the home of the Stuyvesants. And then to the west, there was another mansion on the Hudson River named Richmond Hill that had managed to evade a fate by fire, becoming the residence of several British officers during this period. Then, less than six years after the British fled New York in 1789, the house was rented by the first vice president of the new United States, John Adams, and then, later on, the third man to hold that title, Aaron Burr. Now, Richmond Hill is no longer there, but there are still a handful of landmarks from this period that you can visit, structures that were quite young during the years of British occupation, the aforementioned Francis Tavern, St. Paul's Chapel, which survived the Great Fire of 1776, you have the Morris Jamel Mansion, you have the Van Cortlandt Mansion, and of course, Bowling Green that park on the southern tip of Manhattan that once housed a rather unpopular statue of King George. But there's another reminder of these years that's just a little off the beaten path, just a short distance from New York City Hall. Head towards the Manhattan Municipal Building, step through that imposing central archway, and turn right when you're on the other side of the building, back into one police plaza. Appropriately, as it turns out, for there you'll find a jailhouse window embedded into a wall with ancient iron bars framed in old brick. This is a remnant of the old Rhinelanders Sugar House, originally at the corner of Duane Street and the long gone Rose Street. During the Revolutionary War, the British turned the Sugar House into a prison holding hundreds of rebel prisoners. From this cell window that you can find right here, prisoners could look out to the streets filled with British soldiers, rampaging fires, and general mayhem. The prison held these early New Yorkers, quote, suffering under the stigma of patriotism. 
including publishers of rebellious news sheets and sometimes the readers of those publications. In the intervening years since we recorded those two shows in 2008, we've covered many aspects of New York during the Revolutionary War. We have entire shows on Francis Tavern, for instance, on City Hall and the Commons, on the Great Fire of 1776, and also a show called Before Harlem, New York's Forgotten Black Communities, which takes a closer look at the plight of black New Yorkers during this period. So I make an entreaty to you to dig back into our back catalog. We've got dozens and dozens of shows. They are bound to be subjects from all eras of New York City history that should fascinate you. On our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, I'll have a few additional images of some of the places and events that we spoke about in this show. And I wanted to especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. Your monthly contributions help us to produce bigger and better shows, more expansive shows, and of course, for most shows, we will also release extra audio, a special little podcast just for you patrons. For more information, go to patreon.com slash Boys. So thank you very much for listening. Happy Independence Day. We'll be back with a new show in two weeks. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.